to fund public innovation around artificial intelligence is something that's deeply underexplored. It's a question about who gets to have a voice in making decisions that will affect not just how we use an AI-based system, but will affect who has the ability to have a dignified economic opportunity in a future we're creating. Who should be responsible and how should we go about it? This is a universal and human challenge. This is Aisha Piotti and welcome to Navigating AI, a podcast about how to move the needle forward in AI policy. AI developments promise miracle leaps forward. However, they also present unprecedented challenges and can lead to major disruptions in the core fabric of our society. In Navigating AI, we interview key players from around the world to speak about those challenges and how we can manage these risks. The Patrick McGovern Foundation is a tech-forward, visionary expression of a 21st century philanthropy. One that is committed to leveraging AI for increased equity, justice and sustainability for all. Many of the foundation's efforts have contributed to exciting AI and data innovations in the social impact space. Moreover, this US-based foundation supports well-known global initiatives to build social resilience for an AI-enabled future. This includes working with the OECD, UNESCO, the Global Futures Council of the World Economic Forum, as well as many civil society initiatives from around the world. Today, I have the pleasure to have Vila Starr, President and Trustee of the Patrick McGovern Foundation, join us as a guest. Vilas is a leading global voice on equity in a tech-enabled world. Trained as a computer scientist, lawyer, and policy expert, his true passion and purpose is to build a human-centered future for technology that furthers inspiration, creativity, and human dignity. Welcome, Vilas, to Navigating AI. Aisha, thank you for that generous introduction. I'm so delighted to be with you. Lovely to have you. Um, Vidas, you're based, of course, in the US, and I know that you're involved in this topic. I would like to start by getting your insights on the latest developments in the US regarding AI regulations. And it seems that the topic right now is very high on the agenda of the US government. We have recently seen initiatives also coming out of the Senate, um, as well as certain states like New York and California. Um, you know, in the papers, we read also about uh, talks for establishing a dedicated regulatory agency in the US. So, of course, could you perhaps, um, in a few words, tell us where things stand today in the US with regards to AI regulation specifically and how you view these developments. Amazing, Aisha. You have put your finger right on it. This is the moment where AI has exploded onto the policy scene. And after many years of civil society organizations like ours advocating for better policy on topics like data governance, privacy, sovereignty, and AI, now it feels like within a year we're trying to do five years of work. There are some pretty incredible shining pieces of advancement. The first is, and we have to sort of name it, is the Biden administration's incredible capacity to bring together private sector technology companies in what they're calling voluntary commitments. And where we can have a more robust conversation about whether voluntary commitments should be the bulk of policy, I think I do echo what the Biden administration has said. These commitments are an immediate step, and they're a bridge between 
an unregulated environment and the possibility of government stepping in to provide comprehensive and meaningful guidelines that cover a broad variety of actors. Now, I think it's important to note that this isn't all roses, um, that even though we have voluntary commitments from a number of large technology companies, what we're seeing is a traditional skew, that skew towards the largest entities, the ones that dominate the public discourse, and are today the ones that have the largest access to both compute and technical resources. But we have to be cognizant of the fact that even small and recent research that's coming out of places like Stanford is demonstrating that it's possible to build a pretty robust and meaningful large language model on a $600 processor sitting in somebody's basement. So when we think about voluntary commitments, we recognize that they're covering perhaps 95% of the potential space, but aren't by themselves sufficient to cover that potential 5% of potentially bad or adversarial actors, but maybe much more meaningfully, the explosion of innovation that's happening outside of these tech companies. Now, that's what's happening from an executive office level, and we're seeing the president and the vice president deeply engaged along with staff throughout the White House. But we have to also acknowledge that there are two other major areas of policy that, again, I think are bright lights. The first is this direct commitment by legislators, by senators and congresspeople at the national level and then at state legislatures across the country to build bipartisan acts that attempt to create some frameworks for us. Now, as you might imagine, there's a lot of conversation about harms and vulnerabilities, but I want to draw our attention to two potential pieces of legislation that give us a different frame. The first is the Create AI Act. This is a piece of bipartisan legislation currently in the, in the Congress that reflects the work of a national advisory body that for several years has focused on building a public and common resource to allow for scientific exploration and the development of public-facing AI that's led to a recommendation for the National AI Research, uh, Research Resource. I'm really excited about this, Aisha, because this is a place where we're seeing a divergence from a conversation that's exclusively about the public resonance of harms to really saying, how do we use government capacity to invest in pro-social AI, in building infrastructure that takes technological capacity outside of tech companies and puts them in the hands of certainly academics and researchers, but in my greatest hope, also in the hands of civil society practitioners that can ally with technical experts to build positive solutions. A few other kind of things I just want to frame for you, and we can come back to them if you want to go deeper. The AI Lead Act, which has just been proposed in Congress, which again names the importance of having AI officers across federal agencies and a chief AI officer's council to coordinate government action. This is so critical because, again, it centers us in an understanding that in order to regulate or provide policy guidance for AI, our policymakers and our administrative agencies need to have an innate and almost native understanding of what these tools can do. And as we see across our work with civil society and government, the best way to build that capacity is to create hands-on experience and learning. Finally, and I'll, I'll pause after this, but just to note, we've talked about executive office action and legislative action. But to me, the most critical part of a liberal democracy is having direct inputs from citizens. And we're seeing this across a number of federal agencies here in the U.S., maybe most evident with the actions of the Federal Trade Commission, which through its consumer central network is finding that consumers are really beginning to come forward with citizen concerns and complaints about harms that are related to AI that are actually directly impacting them in their daily lives. People are asking questions about how AI is built, what are the data sets that were used to train them, and how are these models being tested 
for implicit or explicit bias. They're asking about questions of copyright and IP. They're asking about biometric data. And at the end of the day, we're also envisioning that there's about to be a slew of complaints that come around um, consumer um, scams, fraud, malicious use. So institutions like the FTC are filling out that tripod where we have executive action, legislative action, and then a direct input from people like you and me who are sitting out there and seeing how these tools are influencing our lives and asking fundamental questions about who's going to step in to protect us when new vulnerabilities are exposed. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Thank you so much for the overview. And, and uh, of course, you, you mentioned citizens, which I think is really key. And, and here, therefore, the need for being aware. And you talk also about capacity building at the, at the government level, which I also think is very, very relevant. But I'd like to come to something that you said, which, is, um, which I really liked about building pro-social AI, right? And that brings me maybe to my follow-up question, and that's more about inclusion. I think when it comes to AI policy, one of the concerns that, of course, we you know currently being raised also is of uneven participation in the debate. So um, we understand also that in the US government, you know, there's some criticism. And, and you know, also when you follow the media, we see that the regulatory discourse seems to be very much uh, in- integrating into itself dominant voices from the big tech. And um, of course, you are a technical expert, but also a dedicated voice for the civil society. And I would love to hear what is your opinion and your personal take on this specifically. Well, Aisha, if I can be a little bit flip about it, we've seen this Instagram reel before, right? We kind of know what the storyline is. Here's what I mean by that. When the web was originally created, we as a society almost made an intentional decision to not make any decisions. We said, you know what? We'll let tech companies as holders of innovation build the products they want to build, and we'll see what that means for society at large. And unfortunately, 20 years later, I can tell you, I think we failed on some pretty fundamental concepts around individual sovereignty and agency, around what it means to have free expression, even basic questions of net neutrality. But that was once. The second time was around social media. We saw the advent of these new platforms that were fundamentally transforming how we communicate. And yet again, we allowed these institutions of technology and profit to build products that defined what our social response had to be. I'm not interested in doing it a third time, Aisha. And particularly when we begin to talk about something like artificial intelligence, a set of technologies that we have for a decade or more known will transform fundamental ideas about access and inclusion and political power. I'm not willing to step back and say, let's let technology companies building technology for profit figure out what they're going to build and let's respond to it. Okay, well, how do we change that dynamic? Oh, please go ahead. No, and, 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 you know, one of the things would be great to highlight, like, why do you think this is important? Because I think sometimes, you know, we hear so much about it in civil society and we should have all the voices. And I think to start with, first and foremost, I'd love to hear why do you think it is important to have that perspective when we go forward? And then we'll move into why is that not happening and what we can do? Well, let's talk about where the discourse is. And we see it in the headlines today. We're so concerned about the harms of the technology. But if I zoom us out a little bit and look at the harms of technological transformation over the last 30, 40, or 50 years, 
we see that the harms of the technology are only one small part of the question. What's much more fundamental is how the technologies are creating harms by changing social structures, by excluding critical voices, and by creating the kinds of platforms that allow for the spread of not just misinformation and disinformation, but those polarizing anti-democratic points of view that fundamentally alter our political landscape. This isn't a question about technology harms. It's a question about societal norms and societal means. It's a question about who gets to have a voice in making decisions that will affect not just how we use an AI-based system, but will affect who has the ability to have a dignified economic opportunity in a future we're creating, about who gets to have voice in representative political participation, about what safe spaces we create for public discourse that allows us to explore kind of the boundaries of basic assumptions about economic and political views. This is a conversation about the soul of our society. And if AI is an aperture that lets us engage in that conversation, then I love that. But we should be careful. This isn't a conversation about AI sitting on a server somewhere and how it might affect us. This is a conversation about how we interact with each other, where AI might empower us to do so more effectively, and very critically, where it might harm our capacity to have meaningful, powerful social conversations. And of course, that begs the question, um, how, do we, how do we make sure that this happens? If you talk about inclusion of the civil society, um, who should be in charge of that? And, and one of the things uh, which comes out is, of course, uh, the issue of, of, of resources, financial resources as well, right? We talk about the big tech. I mean, you sit in these discussions, there can be teams in front of representing a certain, only one company. And then, and then you, you look at the, the, the other, uh, parts of society. And one of the big questions is how do we enable them to go forward with this? So, so how, what is your view on that? So let's come to the tactical and pragmatic expression of the how in one minute. But let me first talk about the why. And it's a very basic why, Aisha. It's one that grounds us in a moral sense of fairness that I think is truly universal. For decades, we've talked about a digital divide. We've talked about who has access to basic internet connectivity. And maybe not germane to today's conversation for us to go very deep, but let's hold that for a second. The idea that more than 2 billion people on the planet don't even have basic internet connectivity access. But let's go to the next part of this, which is when we begin to think about an AI-enabled future, we start from the data that trains models. And let's ask a question about representation, about who is represented in these data sets that have been training large-scale language models, all of generative AI. And it becomes very easy to note that really that's the expression of maybe a billion or slightly more global north, highly educated, English-speaking, and literate peoples. And what about the remainder of the so-called pyramid, those humans who have agency and expression across the planet who are just not even represented in these systems? To me, that is a moral failing of a society to say we will build technologies that influence the lives and activities of every person on the planet based on data that we've captured from a particular subset of 10 or 15%. And then let's take it to the final expression, right? Not merely who has connectivity or who has data that's represented but in a world where AI algorithms are springing up left and right and transforming our lives, who has the ability to participate in the creation of those algorithms, where the numbers just continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller? The why here is so basic. It affects every single one of us. And I think I could explain this even to my own niece and nephew, who are early preteens, and explain to them. And they will say, well, wait, I don't get it. This isn't fair. 
if we start from that sense of fairness, Aisha, then your question about the how becomes a lot more addressable. Because it means that conversations about things like moving technological capacity outside of tech companies and into civil society isn't merely something that is doable. It's something that becomes a, a dominant narrative. It's what we need to do to create fairness in the world. So how do we do it? Well, the first is a recommendation around policy. I, we talked a little bit about the Create AI Act, but the sense of using public capital to fund public innovation around artificial intelligence is something that's deeply underexplored. We've continued to rely on a narrative around market forces and saying that private sector tech firms that can raise capital from the markets should be the ones who invest in innovative technologies. And yet our own history here in the United States of investing in things like DARPA that led to the original creation of the ARPANET, the precursors of the Internet, came as a result of taxpayer dollars being used to spur public innovation that then led to transformative technologies. I can give you another example. Our investment in weather satellites. Um, that led to the creation of the first global monitoring system under the NOAA, the National Oceanic and uh, Atmospheric Administration, which then was spun out to create consumer-facing weather, accurate weather prediction that, again, saved countless lives and transformed the economics of farming around the world. We have patterns for this. So in AI, what's this missing middle? Well, we've talked a lot about the harms that will come. The EU has been a leader on building a risk-based framework, and you've had a Amazing podcast episode recently where you spoke about some of those activities. We have, I think, a growing sense from a very small sector of loud voices around existential risk. And that's kind of the long-term risk um, context. And we can come back and talk about that. But where there's a resounding silence, Aisha, is the missing middle. The sense that we need to be investing in pro-social AI, in tools that affect everything from subsistence farmers knowing when to better plant and harvest in ways that mitigate climate effects, to the front lines of clinical care delivery in rural Africa, rural India, two places where we work quite extensively, to say that if we actually built machine learning models that directly address the challenges that exist in these environments, we can materially affect human welfare in a positive way. Governments should be investing in that. Civil society should be stepping forward to take on technology ownership. And we should be having a public conversation about why we're okay with the fact that just private tech companies are architecting major decisions about our common future. I I think that's that's makes a lot of sense actually, Vilas. I mean, you, you you touched upon a couple of things, and one of them the digital divide, which I'd like to come back to in a second. But but this thing which interested me actually quite a lot is the use of public capital to fund AI. Right. And I think that you're going to the core of that because, and, and I think you rightfully point out that not much has been done there. And today governments somehow, I don't know what is your feeling about it, but they seem to be trying to grapple with what the rules should be. But then there is this is whole part, which you have, of course, highlighted about inclusion, about making sure the voices are there, making sure that we have all of this debate, awareness of society, citizens in this particular case as well. But to do all that, it requires resources, it requires funding. And I just wonder to what extent that's something which is an high in, 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 in terms of focus. Um, but I guess this is where sort of associations or, you know, uh, is something like the Patrick McGovern Foundation also comes in where you try to, and maybe, maybe you explain a little bit how, you know, the role that you are playing in that particular thing. One is, of course, the government should be doing it, but one is uh, a foundation such as yourself doing it. Right. 
I think that's right. What's evident in the way you frame the question is this is a problem that's not going to be addressed by any single institution or entity. It is going to require a multi-sectoral approach, but let's take this naughty problem and pull it apart a little bit. As an institution, when we think about the lack of pro-social AI applications out there, there's a tripod of factors that need to be put into place in order to let that really move forward. And we know what that is because we've seen what AI development looks like in the private sector. It's three pieces. It's access to compute. It's the physical infrastructure and hardware that's necessary in order to train and um, develop these massive models that are so critical for use. It's data. It's really understanding problems through the lens of people who are closest to the front lines of vulnerability, but then having the institutional mechanisms to pull that data together. And it's talent. It's ensuring that institutions that are trying to solve these problems have top tier machine learning and data science talent, but also the strategic kind of organizational engagement that's necessary in order to advance these. Well, each of these problems have solutions for compute. We know that compute is something that is deeply capital intensive to buy processors and manage server farms is outside of the reach of even institutions like ours. And yet this is where governments have an incredible role to play. We should be thinking of compute as if it's public infrastructure in the same way that we maintain roads and sewage systems. The future of an AI enabled human centered world requires us to have public access to compute resources. And this is something that even though it feels like a Herculean task, in the context of defense budgets or the other things that you know uh, governments often spend money on, this kind of direct investment in building public infrastructure around compute could be transformative. Data. Well, you know what? As we've seen and as we've discussed earlier in this conversation, much of the data that's being used to train these models is coming from commercially profitable sources. We recognize that when Siri was trained, one of the publicly reported stories here is the amount of money that was spent by Apple and other companies to go out and literally pay people to speak into microphones. Well, here's the challenge, Aisha. What they were being asked to say was those most common commercial use cases. What they were never asked to do was to tell stories from their cultural mythologies, to talk about the deep complexities of family relationships, to do all of those things that today, as we think about data collection from traditionally underrepresented communities, is often where they want to start. I recently had a chance to have an incredible conversation with a dear friend of mine, Michael Running Wolf, on the floor of EcoSoc at the United Nations. And Michael there shared the story of what it means to be an indigenous AI scientist who works to capture the languages of dead and dying traditions inside indigenous communities around the world. To capture not just languages, not just words and grammar and syntax, but to capture stories of ancestral wisdom. To own the agency of saying we are represented in this data because of who we are. Well, this is something where we as a foundation have stepped in as have other philanthropies to support broad, broad and widespread data collection about traditionally underrepresented communities from recognizing the genetic markers that are often used in medical development and science are primarily coming from global North communities and we need to expand that aperture to collecting data from indigenous communities, not merely taking it from them, but helping to develop systems where they actually become the collectors and curators, and often the ones who make decisions about how that data is used in global systems. And finally, on this question of talent, I think this is deeply critical, Aisha, and the one that requires the most multi-sectoral collaboration. We need to train an entirely new generation of data scientists and AI engineers who are not trained merely on the technical elements of their work, but on the social and justice-related components of it. We recognize that there's a market need for it. In a recent report we did with data.org, 
we identified a need for 3 million new data science for purpose professionals over the next 10 years. And we identified a number of interventions that'll get us there from philanthropies like ours committing to supporting curriculum in schools across the United States to training or to supporting organizations that are training 25 million young women and girls on data science and AI literacy around the world with our partner Technovation to actually creating employment opportunities so that folks who come out with the credentials to do this work know that they can be gainfully employed in careers of purpose. Our partner Digital Democracy does this by bringing in AI scientists and data experts to build tools that support indigenous earth defenders at the front lines of climate and ecological preservation to use AI-based solutions that help them with their work. That's an incredible example when you think about it, Aisha, because it is the convergence of our most advanced technical innovation with our most natural solutions to protecting our environment, a critical challenge that happens only because we've solved these three elements of pro-social AI. I think we could do this at massive scale. I mean, it's really not rocket science. It's not, you know, um, we could actually build this by a combination of public infrastructure, of supporting frontline civil society organizations to work on data capture, and of supporting our educational credentialing systems to take traditionally underrepresented peoples and make them architects of our digital future. Mm. But I, I guess, and that's, that, that works for that, but, but again, you know, in, in a global sense, and you've talked about that, uh, COVID, we had COVID, right? And, and this whole data and how, what train, what, what sort of sample sizes were used and what populations were used to train, uh, uh, some of the vaccine development and therefore the impact potentially on populations outside of the sort of global north that you're talking about, um, came to forth. And, 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 and that is a discussion that seems to be, of course, happening also now in Africa and some other parts of the world where I hear that there is really a need to, to train locally, use local data, train you know that data and come with solutions locally, which are then used for the communities locally. Right. And that could be geographically, because essentially that's what we've understood specifically in the health sector. Now, you've given some great examples. And I'm just wondering um, if when we look at this problem, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But then one of the questions that's always who should be responsible and how should we go about it? Right. Um, One is at a sort of a country level where we're looking at different stakeholders and we want to integrate them. And one is more at the global level, where today we also see this need when you talk about the digital divide. Well, I think the easy answer, Aisha, and you may find this unsatisfying, but I find it deeply powerful, is all of us are responsible. This isn't the kind of thing. I mean, this is, and it it feels so critical. And again, it underscores that point that this is not an AI conversation. It's a social one. And the only way we have it is for people to engage. So we have some responsibilities around that. I use the broad we, right? The first is, I think, to support our educational system to create a better digital literacy among all of our people. And we need to invest in that. That's a matter of policy. It's a matter of support. But if we are able to do that, and I think we can do it on a relatively quick time frame, you'll find that there's no easy answer here that says, let's just give the responsibility for architecting this future to one set of organizations. We did this already. We did it around the web. We did it around social media, and we've done it around a number of things. We know it doesn't work. So instead, what if we change the conversation? What if we asked our policymakers to move beyond a risks and harms-based approach to say, let's have 20 and 30-year generative conversations about what the possible effects of these technologies might be on how we think about labor, 
on how we think about economic movement, how we think about borders, and how we think about policy participation. If we equip civil society organizations, especially those who have traditionally stayed out of the technology debate, to understand that their points of view and their connection to communities are critical components of this. And philanthropies and civil society organizations came together to say, let's actually build a sectoral engagement around this topic. And if we as combined stakeholders went to our private sector tech companies and said, look, business as usual is no longer okay. We need to see a commitment from you to ensuring full stakeholder engagement. Take your CSR initiatives, apply them to AI, and bring them forward in a way that lets us step over the idea that this is just kind of window dressing and actually becomes a core part of how you do business. Now, I get it, Aisha, I, I am a uh, born optimist and I'm giving you quite a rosy picture of the world, but I'm also quite pragmatic and I lead an institution that's designed to promote some of the very same ideals we've talked about on this call. And so I say to you, even as I call for a sectoral level transformation, I think we can do this by starting in clusters. By working with organizations, for example, at the front lines of climate advocacy to say, we know and you know that if you had better and more integrated data and AI infrastructure, you could all be more effective. And so one of the things that we've spearheaded with a collection of other funders is to support infrastructure funding that connects these climate advocacy organizations together and lets them accelerate their common and shared work. We're seeing the same kind of activity in a cluster around creating new data-driven solutions for frontline healthcare in Sub-Saharan Africa. And I could give you a whole list of examples like this. At the same time, we're coming forward to create training programs and credentialing programs for emerging policymakers, both those who will be on administrative staffs, as well as elected representatives to be able to come and engage with, with experts on AI, but also experts on economic theory and social justice to actually have robust conversations that inform policymaking. So, even though I, I've given you a vision of a future where everybody's engaged and working in common action, in the short term, we just need to continue investing in these clusters of activity that are a little bit broader than what the media would have you think is important around AI. That takes us out of a safety conversation and puts us in a decisions around social structure. Hi, this is Elliot Ash, Chair of Law, Economics, and Data Science at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, ETH Zurich. I would like to use this opportunity to invite you to our upcoming AI Policy Summit in November 2023. The AI Policy Summit is an annual event where top academics, business leaders, and policymakers from all over the world come together to create policy and governance solutions that maximize the impact of AI on businesses and society. If you are working in this field or simply interested in the topic, this is your once-in-a-year opportunity to meet and network with the peers and leaders on the cutting edge of AI policy. For more details on how to join and participate in the summit, visit reghorizon.com or the show notes of this podcast. I think that is the reframing of the conversation that you're talking about. I like very much because I think this is really key. And, and, and I sort of somehow feel that if we do that, we will get consensus on many things that today are sort of seemingly dividing us. So it almost seems to be like when you think about somebody working for social change or social change drivers, civil society, you somehow there is, there is this implicit thinking that it's, in, in, you know, in opposition to what the business tries to do. But effectively, in fact, when you look at it as something is building for the future for all of us, um, 
it, it does make sense to think about it in that way. Um, so the question I'd say is, do you think that enough is being done today in all that area or, or more should be done uh, when it comes to governments or when it comes to this kind of action? Oh, I think we're, we're deeply, we're, we're far, far behind where we need to be, Aisha. That what we've seen over the last, you know, let's say 12 months, 11 months around the great engagement and attraction that people have to talking about AI, I think is a great starting point. But if I can touch a charge third rail here, I've learned a lot from the climate movement. And I think there are some deep analogs here. That climate, even though it became a politicized topic and became an interest-laden agenda, is about a universal human moment that recognizes that we face together a potential of a tragic crisis and it requires collective action. Now, AI, I wouldn't put in the same scale and I certainly wouldn't put in the same language, but we do have here an opportunity for a transformative moment in how we think about the very basics of what it means to be human. And even if we have sometimes performative public engagement with senators holding closed door meetings here in the US or pieces of legislation that are being pushed through, we need to step out of that frenzy and recognize that this is something that is about, again, the soul of our society. And we need to do a lot more. I have a set of ideas about how we could do that. And I know we've talked about them a little bit already in this conversation. But the first is um, orienting our public conversations and public discourse away from a fear-based mindset and moving it to a nuanced and generative one of recognizing that there are conversations to be had here that actually have nothing to do with technology, but have to do with who owns, who has the right to exploit, who benefits from, and who at the end of the day is the architects of what we're trying to create. There's a possibility to do that that doesn't require every citizen on the planet to become an AI expert. But we totally have to agree. do it. We have to do it. Because just like with climate, this is a universal and human challenge. This is an opportunity as well, but it's going to not be defined by borders and by nation state interests. It's gonna be defined by our common welfare. And I think that's a critical opportunity that we could seize if we really stepped into it. No, I love those tips. Since I have you here and understand that you've sort of, of course, provided also extensive guidance to foundations across the globe on how philanthropy can, in fact, amplify uh, the civil society's voice. So could you maybe also share some, some insights on that, which could be useful potentially for those that are listening? Of course. You know, the sector of philanthropy in so many ways is a microcosm of so many other sectors we're seeing. It's one that's been deeply influential in social justice over a century or more. At the same time, it's been a sector that's been deeply averse to the technological transformation that's happening around us. And so I think of our sector as a sector that's in the middle of our own change management process, of one where we need guidance and support to step through not just understanding what these technologies represent, but how they'll impact everything about how philanthropy works. So we have a small set of suggestions. Um, the first is, of course, this need to kind of step in and become digitally literate about as quick as it's possible to do so. And that doesn't mean simply hiring technical staff into these institutions. It means as boards and as C-suite officers engaging with deep curiosity and humility to understand not just what AI represents, but how it might be used in ways that have a real impact on people on the ground. From that digital literacy then comes a second part, which is to leverage the deep knowledge that these institutions have about the challenges that communities face to inform questions about what kind of AI we actually need to build. 
not to take AI models that are built off the shelf and try to adapt them, but instead to start from community-centered concerns and interests and say, what are the problems? What are the data? What are the models that we have access to? And how do we custom build solutions? And the third is to recognize that even though the first human instinct is always to step into a conversation about AI governance, which is what we're seeing where many institutions that five years ago weren't necessarily thinking about AI have now decided to step into that particular topic. But to recognize that AI is going to be something that touches every part of these institutions' strategic and programmatic work. And that means that even as we're having conversations about risk reduction in large-scale models, foundations need to be thinking about how AI is going to affect the work of their partner nonprofits and civil society organizations, a building and supporting capacity for those institutions to engage on a pathway to learning and mastery, and to thinking about how philanthropies play a role as really conveners and aggregators of resources. To ask every nonprofit in the world to have an AI expert is unreasonable. But potentially, foundations could invest in building the infrastructure and capacity to build centers of excellence across civil society. To say, if you're a nonprofit that's struggling with a question around population-level data from a population that you've worked with for 20 years and you need some support and help to engage with how to use that and turn it into usable insights, you don't need to do it yourself. That there's going to be an institution that's created for you. We pioneered that here at the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation through our data practice, where we have on staff data scientists and AI experts who partner directly with nonprofit organizations on a pro bono basis to say, let us help you understand what your data opportunity is and help build a set of practices that move you into the kind of data fluency so that you can actually be architects of your own solutions. We've now done that with over 100 organizations, and we're seeing the need for those services expanding quickly. We're in the middle of a conversation, I used to say, how do we actually begin to think about this, not merely as programs of philanthropy, but as a creation of a new set of institutions that transform power, that bring technical capacity in and sit it right next to our civil society organizations and say, we can actually build solutions that transform the world without ever having to include a private sector organization. How do we build technology for purpose instead of technology for profit? I think what you say, specifically in terms of collaboration, um, this center for expertise, and, and often we don't think about it that way, but I think this is exactly going to be the way going forward. When you have limited resources, we've got to think about collaborating, sharing of those best practices and having some structures like the ones you have, of course, outlined just now as well. Um, and, and, and that's not just the, the case, I believe, for philanthropy, but it's, it's very much also for the startup ecosystem. And, and often people say, well, we don't have the money. We can't really, but there's many ways that you can set up structures such as this, facilitate that. And if you have, if you can facilitate that sort of cross pollination of ideas, you might not need, as you rightfully say, uh, AI experts everywhere <laughs> running around because that's never going to happen. So, 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 so this mindset of sort of looking at it in a proactive way, which is, you know, positive and saying we can make that change. Each of us needs to be involved in it. Um, we all can move that needle forward. Is is obviously in, in the way forward. And 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 what you have shared today uh, for me has been illuminating. The certain things which I really really highlighted, which I like very much. Like the, it's a conversation about the soul of our society. I think that's a great line. And 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 really it is for our society today, but also for our, what our society will be in the future. So for me, this is this is this has been illuminating fascinating we're slowly coming to a close i wish i could talk more with you um but but question i would ask is and it's a bit more personal would be 
what really motivates you, Vilas, to do what you do? And, and, and yeah, why do you do this? And how did you, you know, come into this thing? Oh, well, you're very kind to ask, Aisha. I'll tell you two, two sides of that story. The first goes back to kind of how I grew up. Um, and I, I want to share with you, you know, I grew up, I was very lucky to grow up at the intersection of almost not three geographies, but almost three periods of human history, I sort of think about, right? On one side was my family back home in India. I grew up in the United States as an American, but when I went back to visit them in a rural, almost pre-industrial era, right? No running water, no power. And I learned the incredible joy of what it looks like to have the family and community and town level engagement that societies have built as a matter of social resilience. To know that there's no such thing as an individual decision that you will always be supported. At the same time, I have to acknowledge it. It was also devastating to me to see the difference in equity between how kind of life operated there and where I was in the middle of Illinois, a place that was the second epoch of human history, right? 1980s America, a place of, and a time of deep optimism, but also of emerging kind of social frictions. And then third, I grew up very luckily just a few blocks away from the National Center for Supercomputing one of the most amazing examples of human innovation at the front lines, our future, as it were. And I was struck by this incredible optimism about what was possible when we brought all these tools to bear. You can probably hear it in my voice now. I am so optimistic about the world we can build with these incredible technologies we create. But the flip side of that was an impatience. If we knew that that better world was possible, then why are we wasting our time building technologies purely for short-term profit that don't actually advance the human condition? So I think a better way is possible. And this is the second part of the story is recently, you know, I've been spending a lot of time with, with kids and with adults all learning about AI. And even though one part of my mind is always thinking about policy and about investment and about harms and vulnerabilities, what I'm also just struck by is the incredible joy that people experience when they're able to engage with a system that has nothing to do with the code base or the model or the training, but is a tool that lets them take their own creativity their own inspiration, their mind's picture of what's possible, and use an AI-enabled system that helps make it real and helps create it for them. To me, these moments where people are just able to expand their sense of what they are capable of, the joy that comes with it, the inspiration, this is a future we should all hope for and we should be so excited by. That's what drives me in this work, is to make that future a reality. That's wonderful. It's beautiful, actually, to hear these words. And, you know, your your motivation comes through. And, and I think that having joy in what you do, I, I suppose, is what is, uh, in a way, uh, why you are so successful in what you do as well. So it's been wonderful, uh, Vilas, to have you uh, with us uh, today. Thank you for sharing these insights. Uh, we look forward to, of course, continuing the conversation. And I hope, of course, that the, the our our listeners have been enlightened by what you have said as well. And uh, we look forward to keeping in touch. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Aisha. It's been a delight. If you're interested to learn more or have questions that you would like me to cover in future episodes, please reach out to me via LinkedIn. I would also like to remind you to join us for our upcoming Global AI Policy Summit. The program and the registration details you can find in this episode's notes.